Have you ever wondered what a Just Between Us episode sounds like before we edit a lot of, of the stuff out? <laughs> <laughs> well, get ready, because on February 13th, we're doing a live Valentine's Day spectacular, a live taping of an episode with no edits. So that means that you can hop on your computer and watch us in real time as we play a rousing game of hypotheticals, answer questions directly from you, the audience, in real time, and also ask some of the toughest questions to date of our very special guest, my fiance, John Blakesley. And John has to answer them. Yeah, this is, it's the <laughs> ultimate hot seat because it's live, baby. And it's just in time to ruin Valentine's Day. <laughs> so so head on over to moment.co slash just between us and you can get your tickets for the live taping. Yeah, the tickets are going to be $10 so you can watch it live or you can watch it up to seven days afterwards for $10. We're also going to be having a meet and greet opportunity on February 16th at 5 p.m., Pacific time where we can like basically like hop on a little call with you. We can gossip. We could take <laughs> screenshots. We can do anything off the record and that'll be $20. Oh yeah. So join us on February 13th at 5 p.m. PST at moment.co slash just between us. And uh, we'll see you there. Yeah. We might get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I have had three surgeries in my life. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabby Don. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I am a week out from top surgery. Hello. Hello Welcome from back. the other side. We don't have the rights. <laughs> um, hi. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing an episode now and I, I just, while well, I have the energy. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, I had top surgery on the 6th. I'm here. It is December 14th, not to uh, bust, burst your bubbles about when we record. Um, so <laughs> it's like, yeah, drains are out and I am wearing a gauze and tape and uh, something to cover my nips, which are scars. I mean, uh, scabs. And I have a, a tank top and then a compression binder. So I've got a lot of layers on. Wow. So take us through it all. How did, how did it all go? <laughs> so we had to get to the surgery center at UCLA at like 6 a.m. Let me tell you, the doctors and the anesthesiologists and the two, the two residents that were there I was doing a tight 30. I was doing stand up. I was doing jokes. I was doing left and right, giving them entertainment, making them laugh. Before you were medicated or just sober? No, sober, sober <laughs> before I was being I like the the anesthesiologist was like, can you hand me an alcohol to the uh, nurse? Uh, and he meant an alcohol swab. And I was like, it's not even noon. Like I was borscht belting it up. Like I was doing <laughs> they loved it. He also was like, I'm going to put the nipples here because like he's marking me and he's like, I'm going to put the nipples here. And he was like, you know, it's funny. There's a new trend of like no nipples. And I was like, OK, call me an elder millennial, but I want the nipples. <laughs> Just like doing... he was loving it. 
And then they bring you into the surgery room. And I was sort of used to it for my reduction, but they bring you into the surgery room. They have you, they put the mask on you and then you're gone. And then I woke up three hours later, throat killing me, breathing tube, absolutely hurting so much. I, that was the biggest, like I was, I had a lot of meds, but I mostly felt coherent, but the breathing tube, like when they intubate you, did you have that? It hurts so bad in my throat. They had taken it out by the time you woke up or no? Yeah. Yeah. And it was dry and horrible. And the anesthesiologist said, listen, they're going to take the breathing tube out and you're going to feel like you have strep, but you don't have strep. And I was like, okay, I well, I had that. really? I, my throat didn't hurt when I woke up. Oh my God. My throat hurts so bad. And then I got back to uh, my boyfriend, Alex's house and he was taking care of me. But I was like, so nauseous too, like so nauseous. And then like crying because of the nausea as one does, because of course you convince yourself that you're going to be nauseous forever. And you're like, I'm crying because what if I'm never not nauseous? And then I had drains in and not to brag, but there was hardly any fluid in the drains. I really, I really never got, I, I never had a lot of anything in the drains that my drains were pretty, pretty dry actually. And I had a, a bunch of foam and gauze and the compression binder and the drains. I couldn't shower. Worse, okay, the worst thing was I couldn't shower. So like yeah. my hair was so greasy. Like that is the thing that was like my skin was bad. Like I was like really, if I, if I don't shower, it all goes to shit within like three days. <laughs> like, when were you allowed to shower again? So I got to like wash my hair in the sink and sort of like, wipe myself off on day five. And then I could shower. I showered yesterday. And wow. it was like hard to do because I was, I couldn't get the front wet. So I had to sort of like, Alex came with me in the shower and was helping me. <laughs> I can't have anyone help me. I feel so weird and bad about getting help or someone helping. People were really nice. Like people... Cerise, my friend Cerise came and fed the cat every day. Drew came and like got me my meds and took care of beans. Like tons of people were were so helpful, um, which was like really nice. And like I had to get comfortable asking people for help. Alex took care of everything. Cheyenne's taking care of me right now. It's hard. It's really vulnerable. Partially some of why I cried. I cried a lot. Some of why I cried was the pain, but some of why I cried was just like feeling so vulnerable and exposed and like needing to wait for someone else to do something, right? So like if 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 somebody's, you know, in the kitchen and they're they're cooking something, I can't put on my socks until they're done. Mm -hmm. So I just have to wait until they're finished and they can put my socks on. And and like the uncomfortability of being like I can't even like reach for my water until this other person comes in the room is like, you're not used to that, that you, you, you don't want to inconvenience people just to even like pick up something from the floor. Like it's so, um, and waiting to do things that you would just like normally take care of yourself. And then it just feels really vulnerable. No, I mean, it's, it's a really weird feeling. Uh, I think I'm more comfortable asking for help from like my parents and John than maybe you were like, yeah. Cause after my knee surgery, I mean, I couldn't do shit but I definitely felt more comfortable you know you get used to it you get used to yeah. like oh I can't I I am 
incapable of caring for myself. And so I just have, we just have to roll with this. It's also so vulnerable because there were people that were like, I can't, or they would say I can, but after five o'clock or something, you know what I mean? So like I had a package out on my stoop and I was like, I need someone to get the package. It's like $300 worth of equipment. I need them to get the package. And I couldn't find anyone to get the package. And I was like, and, and I was talking to people and they were, it was like really vulnerable because they were like, I can, but after five or I can, but like tonight or, and so I was stressed about the package just being there. And cause we have had package thieves. And I was also like people saying, no, it's like rejection sensitivity. So I would be like really sad and like really be like, and then I was like so much logistics of being like, okay, well, this person could do it at five, but maybe someone else could do it earlier. And like, oh, someone's going to cut, you know, even with like, okay, so like Drew can get my meds and then come over. And then, you know, Alex has to go here and Drew can come stay with me on Thursday night, but then Cheyenne is going to pick me up and I'm going to go on Wednesday. Like, it's this like big thing of like, you can't be alone. So coordinating all these people to be around you and help you and the logistics of it all is like, it was just really overwhelming. And like, really, I can't drive. So people have to like, come get me or or come over. Well, I think you're doing so well, considering you're just a week out. I know. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I do. I am crying a lot more than I'm letting on. But that part's normal. Your body, yeah. your body goes through big stuff. and like becomes emotional, at least in my experience. Because you're cut open because you're vulnerable. Like surgery is so emotional. Mm-hmm. And I just have been crying a lot. And I'm happy with the chest. Oh my God, I was so, when they took the bandages off, I was like prepped for the worst. And then they took them off and I got to see the chest and I was like, okay, whew, you know, looking I don't good. know. Yeah, it's looking good. And and I, well, cause also he, the the surgeon was like, okay, so we're gonna give like the nipples a little bit further apart to give it like a male chest. And he was like, but some people actually are doing like more inner, the nipples in more to have like a more like neutral sort of chest. And I was joking. I was like, split the difference, doc. And then he was like, wait, are you serious? And I was like, no, don't split the difference. (laughs) I was just kidding. So then I, you know, and he also, oh, can I say, should I say this? He's a very good surgeon, but he is a little bit clumsy. And he was like, oh, it looks good. It looks really good. And Carly, my friend Carly had him as a surgeon too. And said that when they went to their post-op, he was looking at the work being like, wow, I'm great. Like, look at how great this is. Like, I like very like, um, wow, I did a really good job in a slightly dehumanizing way, which is fine. He's a surgeon. But so for me, he was like, oh my God, let me tell you, I actually had to do extra lipo in the middle. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, because there was enough fat there for a third boob. And I was like, sir. And he was like, it was crazy. I had to do like, yeah, I had to do extra lipo because I was like, oh my God, I took the breasts off and there was still some extra fat. And I thought, oh my God, if if I leave that there and they wake up, they're going to kill me. <laughs> Something surgeons should just keep to themselves. Yeah, well, he was trying to explain why there was more bruising on one side, but I was like, I would go with, I had to do a little lipo there and not keep saying the words third boob. <laughs> So many times. It doesn't even make any sense to me what he could even mean by that. So many times he said third boob. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, this is just between us, a variety <laughs> show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty, like when a surgeon tells you you had enough fat for third for a third boob. 
That's ridiculous. Um, but we have got a, a great episode. We're so glad to have Gabby back. This week, we're asking Yvette Gentile some tough questions about ethically covering true crime and her own family's relation to true crime. And later, we'll be talking all about confrontation and when it's worth it. I have a feeling the three of us will disagree. (laughs) (laughs) But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Paige, Canada. Hello! My name is Paige and my pronouns are she, her. I have been listening to you both for so long and look forward to hearing your voices each week. I find it so comforting to hear a wide variety of topics being discussed in such a friendly and open manner. I also feel like growing up with you two has taught me to be perfectly okay with all the changes that come in life, and that is such a privilege to have. So kind. That's really sweet. I know. (laughs) Um, Trigger warning, my questions deal with suicide and mental health. I wanted to ask this question over a year ago when it happened. So this is not so much a recent event, but something I still struggle with and wanted to put out there for discussion. My mother's husband, who I had a difficult relationship with, died from suicide last year. It was largely my responsibility to take care of all the proceedings around the death arrangements as my mother was fairly indisposed. Part of these responsibilities were talking to people and telling them about his death. Inevitably, they would ask how he died, and I always felt bad telling people because I know the way he died could be very triggering, and I didn't want to cause people harm. On the other hand, I didn't want to lie because it is something that should be discussed. To this day, I still don't know what the answer is, and for the most part, I just blurt it out awkwardly every time or say it in a way that made it seem really shameful, which is also problematic. I guess my question is, how do you talk about suicide in an honest way that is still respectful of other people's triggers? Thank you, Paige from Canada. This is a tough one. This is an extremely tough one and a really great question, Paige. I was hesitant to pick it because I don't feel like I have the right answer or that I'm an expert enough in this to give a correct answer. But I also felt like it was such an important question. I didn't want to ignore it. And I Mm -hmm. felt like maybe we could just share our thoughts, but with the extra huge caveat of like, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know. We're not experts. I think it's been really great. The increased awareness, like when, you know, the language changed to died by suicide, you know, I like, I think there there's been some really great activism and shifts around that language. And so I think that comes from more discussion and that comes from what you're saying, like more openness about the topic. It's hard because even I'm guilty of this. I was just doing this, actually. I uh, There was a, someone, a young person who passed away and I went and I was like, wow, they're super young. I wonder what they died of. And I like went to look and TMZ had reported that it was suicide but no other outlet really did. And I was like, I think that's out of respect. But I also, there was another person who I, I didn't know this person at all, but there was another person that I a little bit knew or had worked with before who who died by suicide and um, in this fall. And um, I want, I, I think it has impacted me knowing that that was his cause of death because it was so shocking. And because it was someone who seemed like he had everything in life. And so I was 
surprised by that, but I think it was also maybe important for people to know because in the aftermath, because I think it changed for me, at least it changed how I viewed success, how I viewed people who have success, how I viewed like judging what, what people who I think are successful. So it has, it does have the impact you're talking about Paige, where it does, I think, eliminate a stigma and, and help people. But I don't really, I mean, would it be possible to say on an individual level, would it be possible to say he passed away in a way that might be triggering? So if you, if you really want to know, I'll tell you, but if, if you feel like certain deaths are triggering to you, I would rather not say, is that crazy? I don't know. I think it's one of those things where unfortunately everybody is so different that to have one approach is going to cause some people discomfort, right? Like, I don't think that this is something where a certain phrasing of it means that no one will be triggered. No one will Mm -hmm. be upset. It's the perfect way to handle it. Like the reality is, is this is a really upsetting way for people to die. It is, you know, it brings up a lot of different feelings in people for a lot of different reasons. And so I think you're almost putting too much pressure on yourself to have a solution for a problem that I don't think has one. Yeah. And so that's kind of like one of my takeaways is like, you can only do the best that you can. I don't think that like, there is this magic answer of say this, then this, then that, and here, do this, you know, like, And I think at a certain point, it is thinking about, you know, what is your priority for you? Like, and I think it seems like having open and honest conversations about the reality of suicide is something that is important to you. And Mm -hmm. so I think potentially, you know, I think you mentioned sort of that, like there was like a bluntness to it or the way you would deliver that line in and of itself maybe felt uncomfortable to you. And so I think there is something to almost practicing your cadence or the mm. specific way in which you share that information. You know, and I, I I like almost what you said of like, I think you can share this person died. And then if somebody asks how, you can say, well, I know this is upsetting, but unfortunately he actually died by suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, some way that you almost know how you're going to deliver it and then you can deliver it the same way every time. Um, so that maybe your nerves don't come out in terms of it being curt or glib or not at fully expressing the way you actually feel about it, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And I also think, I think because it is such a, a, a triggering topic, I, I don't think you need to provide that info if it's not necessary or asked for, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. I also think calling your own shame or making something seem shameful shameful problematic is applying a global or societal pressure onto your own interactions so like you're not the the person who is designated to change this by yourself like you're not being problematic you're just taking care of how you handle things and how you i and i think you have the care and the thought to even send us this question So you're being probably a little hard on yourself, I would say. I think you're right. I mean, people react so differently. Like some people 
like are able to make jokes about things that other people are not. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of, um, it might be helpful to look into like grief resources, like resources around sudden deaths or uh, books about from people who have experienced a, a loved one dying by suicide or even just general stuff about grief. Um, Nora McInerney does a lot of really great work around grief with uh, her podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking, but also just her books and her work where she she kind of shares both sadness and and activism and sometimes stuff to like help like be a little lighthearted. And so I think if you I think maybe there's you're being hard on yourself because there's some leftover grief. Even if you didn't get along with this person, you still had to go through all of this stuff to celebrate and like deal with the end of his life and to celebrate his life. You know what I mean? Like that all fell to you. So there is probably some residual grief or even like if it's not grief about the specific person, just the closeness of sudden death can really mess with you. And I think, you know, like Abby touched on, it is not your responsibility to constantly be a a mental health activist. Right. Right. So there might be days where you feel comfortable sharing this information with somebody and there might be days where you don't. And that doesn't make you a failure. That doesn't mean that you're not, you know, actively contributing to the world. Like this is a really personal thing. And so when you have the time and energy to get into these discussions, I think that's a wonderful thing. But when you don't, like you can also, you know, prioritize your own well-being. Mm-hmm. And there will be some situations where it won't necessarily feel safe or helpful to even share this information. You know, like if you're around somebody who you know will be judgmental of that or you're mm-hmm. around somebody who you don't want to hear their take, you don't want to hear their take on that. Like it's you're, you're allowed to take breaks from mm-hmm. from from this conversation mm-hmm. because the reality is it's a conversation you're going to probably be having, you know, for the rest of your life. And so you can figure out when, when you have the energy for it and when you don't. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. And I might seem rude to be like, I actually don't want to discuss how he died or whatever. And like, I guess that could be awkward, but hopefully the people in your life that are are kind, that would have the gall to ask are kind of uh, prepared for the answer of, I don't want to talk about it. Or just like, it's actually, you know, a private matter or, you know, yeah. he, he, he was sick, he, he you was know, sick. because the reality oh. is, is like he was sick and people don't just die by suicide when they're well, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and mm-hmm. so I think sick is a, is a, is a vast broad term that I think can also be applied here. That's good, Allison. Well, we hope that that helps. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to just between us pod at gmail.com. That's just between us, P-O-D at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Yvette Gentile. Stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, we have Yvette Gentile, who is the co-host of Facing Evil podcast, where instead of focusing on their own story of overcoming intergenerational trauma, Yvette and her sister, Rasha Pecorero of Root of Evil, shed light on other resonant cases not typically discussed in the media with a sense of sympathy and compassion toward the victim that few people can approach sensitive issues like these with. And we will get to that. Um, Hi, Yvette. 
Hey, aloha, y'all. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. This is our first time we've had siblings on. I know. Yeah. <laughs> One sibling and the other sibling. I know. And the and the other sibling is very offended. She's not here today. <laughs> Lies. She just messaged me. She's excited as hell. She literally just DM'd me. So she is not upset in any way. Yeah. No, I'm joking. I should just say she's she would she would really want to be here, you know. Mm. But she's like, you know, they only do one guest at a time. <laughs> Well, and also we we were like, let's not repeat. Let's have Yvette yeah. on to talk about it's, their show. Yes, yes, yes. And for people who missed when we talked about Root of Evil, can you kind of give a little summary of what got you into this genre and how you started by exploring your own family? Yeah, it's so crazy. I mean, never in a million years did we think that we would be in the true crime arena. But because of Root of Evil, because of our mother, because of I Am the Night, which was directed by Patty Jenkins, starring Chris Pine, um, we were asked to do a podcast, you know, and back then we were like, what the hell is a podcast? But okay, <laughs> you know, we'll do it. Anything, you know, where we can talk about our mom and really bring her back to life because it was so devastating for us, you know, to lose our mom to breast cancer in 2017. So Root of Evil came together because of Zach Levitt, who's this amazing producer, director. And he reached out because he had heard me do an interview with my mom for Mother's Day. And he was so fascinated with my mom and her story. And then he didn't realize that I had a sister. So he called us and he was just so like, I can't even tell you, just so amazing, so cradling to us. Because, you know, when you when you lose someone and then you start to talk about all the the darkness, it's, it's kind of hard, you know, it's, it's, it's traumatic all over again. But when he said, well, we're going to get the family all together, we were like, well, that's very cathartic. You know, it could be healing for all of us. So that's how Root of Evil, you know, came to be. And it was incredibly successful, you know, I mean, it was brilliantly done. And it's something that my mom, you know, always wanted to do, like, she always wanted to to tell the whole story, the true story, nothing but the truth, I should say, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so that's really how it all came about. And and you asked me, I just have to say, the way that it came all about was because of our mother, because she was so, so fiercely determined to tell her story to the world. And she, I mean... She hit the pavement year after year after year after year, waiting for someone to to take on the project. You know, she met, met with Oprah, with Kevin Costner, like all kind of people, but it never happened. And then finally, when she met Patty Jenkins, then it it opened up. But you know, it was it was heartbreaking because it happened. You know, it went to it went on to the set two months before our mother passed. Mm -hmm. So. You can imagine, especially for both Rasha and I, but my mom had me when she was 15 and I've been hearing her tell this story like my entire life. So to not have her physically with us was one of the hardest, you know, just one of the hardest things ever, ever. So it all came about because of our mother, Fauna Hodel. Can you explain a little bit like the, the log line or like what Root of Evil was about with her? Yeah, I mean, Root of Evil is about, you know, my mother who 
Her name was Fana Hodel. She was born here in San Francisco, right around the corner from where I live, just by coincidence. She was given away at birth under very mysterious circumstances. And on her birth certificate, it said that her father was Negro. So of course, back in the 50s, you know, they're going to look for a Black family to raise this child. So she got adopted by a shoeshine man and a maid, and that was Jimmy Lee and Homer Face and my, my grandparents that I was raised with. Um, and Jimmy Lee was, she was, she was a hoot. I mean, she was crazy, but she was a hoot. But she always told my mother, never change your name because you come from a very wealthy family. So of course, when you put that, you instill that in your child's head, right? At a very young age, your curiosity is going to get the best of you. And it did with my mom. So she, she went on this search, like she, she always said, like from the time she was eight years old, she had this vision of telling her story and she started manifesting all the pieces of the puzzle. And she finally figured it out when she was probably, I would say, 20 in her early 20s who her biological mother was and that took us to Hawaii when we meet you know Tamar her biological mother who is this beautiful woman and she has these three beautiful children and they're they're boys and they're my mother's brothers peace love and joy and in that in that meeting Tamar finally tells her that by the way your father wasn't black. He was supposedly some Italian playboy that, you know, took advantage of me and got me drunk. And your grandfather was one of the prime suspects in the Black Dahlia murder. And there was incest in the family. So you can imagine my mom's mind was just blown, shattered, identity crushed, like all the things you can possibly imagine. And from there, she just, she continued to want to tell her story and find out as much as she could. Um, and she knew she had a bigger story to tell. So Root of Evil is my mother's story. It's her biological mother, Tamar's story. It's, you know, Steve Hodel, our great uncle. It's his story about his father, George Hodel. And then our entire family, you know, being raised, knowing that, you know, your great grandfather was a prime suspect in the most notorious murder ever, you know, yeah. in America. So it was heavy to say the least, you know, um, but we all took it very differently, you know, so, and that's, you know, that's family dynamics for you, right? Mm-hmm. I have to say as a listener, Root of Evil has stood out in my mind because it had that element of all the best narrative parts of a tree crime series. But then this addition of that, you guys were telling your own story, right? Mm -hmm. Which yeah. so rarely happens and what it meant to you, what it meant to your family, what it meant to talk to each other about it. And it was, it's interesting because I think now there is a lot of discourse around true crime and around these stories that are being told that the victims' families do not want shared. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what is it like for you to now be navigating going from telling your own story to trying to tell other people's stories? 
You know, I think that's a great question and it's so personal. It's like anytime we we do these stories, like we look at it in a much deeper way, I think, than most people look at it. You know, a lot of people, you know, look at true crime in, you know, a salacious way or that's the the kind of story that they want to hear or they're used to hearing. I think for, you know, myself and for Raja, it's, we're always looking for the heart of the story and and how it has affected, you know, the children, the family members, you know, we get so caught up in knowing, well, the details of what happened, but it's the aftermath, you know, that is so important. And so, so we need to, as a society and as people need to have empathy, you know, for the victims. So I think that, you know, Russia and I really try to do it like we like to say we're true crime with heart because we we try to to take it on a very personal level and walk through it as gracefully as we can you know always always you know trying to find that light in the darkness um it's not always easy but how how can you come out on the other side you know of mm-hmm. trauma you know so I can just honestly tell you that again, I never thought that m- me would myself would be doing any type of true crime, never in a million years. But the more that I do these stories and the aftermath of the best friend or the mother or the father, like it changes their journey. You know what I mean? And some become lawyers, some become activists, some become just wanting to to do better all the time. And I think because of the way that Rasha and I were raised with my mom, and my mom was such a storyteller. And and anytime, you know, you would be in the room with my mom, like she would, you would instantly know her entire life right away. (laughs) But, but with that being said, she would want to know your story and how connected that is, you know, how we are all so connected in so many different ways, you know. I was listening to to Facing Evil and it is interesting, like the way that you and Rasha sort of talk about, wow, this must have really upended the sibling's life or this must have really been hard for, you know, the parents. And what what is it sort of like to have your story told over and over again? And I even like with the an old case, like with the JonBenet Ramsey case, you know, talking about like what effect it must have had on on Burke. Where like, you know, I think the flippant thing that people say is like, he did it. Right. right. And like, what does that do to a person? Uh, And it just changes the entire, like, who knows what that kid would have been without this. And that's like something that I think, I think I haven't really heard a lot of true crime podcasts do. But I also wonder, you know, like, if how do you like if so, it's so different the people that want to move on and never talk about it and then the people mm-hmm. who do like you said sort of become activists or try to get their story in front of the media I think like the idea that some true crime has started taking on is we're going to do cold cases or we're going to do cases where getting the word out might actually help solve this case um, and there's been like an increase in that kind of thing of like let's cover this case and see if if the getting the word out about it could solve it or somebody knows something yeah. or, you know, like I want, how, how have you seen like that sort of shift in like, okay, 
maybe we don't want to cover the salacious part. Maybe we want to cover like interviewing the mom to see if we can get who actually wants the story told so that we can see if maybe there's some clue that we missed. Yeah, I mean, 100%. You know, I mean, we're not, you know, Raja and I are not, you know, journalists, we're not detectives, but, you know, we're moving forward with a new format where we're going to be interviewing people. And it's quite interesting because that is our hope. You know, that is really, truly the hope that when you tell these cold cases, that the more you tell these stories that someone is listening that might have that little piece of the puzzle, you know, or, or know something, but they're afraid to, to come forward, you know, or they forgot even, or they forgot. Exactly. 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 Or they forgot. I mean, we did a case on, um, sister Kathy Sesnick and, you know, there was such trauma to these, to these girls that in, in this particular school, you know, this priest, anyhow, it's a, it's a long, it's on our podcast. It's a long story. But one of the women, like she had mentally blocked what happened to her out. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't until she was, you know, in her 40s that all of these memories started to come back, you know. So, yes, it's very true. I think the more the more we can tell these stories with empathy, with compassion, with heart, with the facts, you know, I, I help, I, I hope that it, it transpires into justice, you know, that, that is the ultimate goal, right? I mean, it was super interesting with the, with the Gabby Petito case, because they, I remember in Florida, they were searching and they found like nine other bodies <laughs> and they were identifying other people. And like, that is this sort of missing white woman syndrome. But then I think there's been this real shift, at least publicly since that case, where it's like it brought to light other missing people who were not white, who were queer, who uh, had gone missing. It started also this this avalanche of, hey, these other people's cases actually like are, you know, are unsolved. And then there were like higher some of them got solved just on the heels of all of this press surrounding this un- really unfortunate domestic violence case and hopefully right, also right. brought a lot of attention to domestic violence in especially really young people. A lot of them do not get solved. And yeah. a lot of them, especially for for underrepresented communities, are not even looked into that hard. So it is like kind of a bummer that within our like policing and detective system these like Redditors and podcasters are the ones being like, what about this case? Right. Exactly. Again, exactly. (laughs) Like, you know, circumstances happen and you find yourself, you know, on a whole new journey of trying to, you know, my mom used to always say, make the world a better place, you know, Mm -hmm. and just trying to do it, you know, in the best way that you know how, and you're so right. You know, that's why we, we focus so so much on the LGBTQ plus community, you know, and telling stories and telling stories like of Alexis Murphy, you know, and all of these, you know, women and children, black and brown, where you never, you never have heard these stories, you know, and that's the one thing about, you know, this pandemic in 2020, you know, I remember sitting, sitting, you know, in my living room, you know, at the end of March, right. And all this was going on. And I kept thinking, why the hell are we all sitting still? What is really 
happening here, you know? And it was like, it just felt like the rug was about to get like shooken, you know, shook, like to the nth degree where all the shit was going to come out, you know, and everybody had no choice because we were all at home. You had to pay attention to what is really happening in this world, you know, to, to make us all think a little bit harder and have more empathy for one another. You know, we are all human beings on this planet. You know, we eat, we drink, we use the bath. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, like, come on. We're all the activism that came out of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, good things happen in bad situations. And we, we do see this when we tell these stories as well. You know, it's unfortunate. It, It always takes you know, uh, a catastrophe or a trauma, you know, to make us really look at what is really happening. Yeah. You become a domestic violence activist. You become, yes, you don't have to, obviously, if you go through a huge trauma, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. It's your, it's your choice. You know what I mean? But I think, you know, you know, we were talking to um, a doctor yesterday and it's, it, it just starts with small things small things and small and then obviously big big things when we talk about education and political and and Mm -hmm. all the things but I was telling her you know we were raised in Hawaii right which is it's the melting pot of the world and growing up in Hawaii there's that aloha spirit so you walk down the street and you're like aloha aloha you know like, good morning. And it, it's to everyone. I don't care if you're Chinese, Japanese, you know, gay, straight, bi, trans, like yellow. It's like, hi, you know what I mean? It's just that simple gesture of kindness that can go so far. And so many people are, they're so tense, right? And so afraid to just be open, just be yeah. open. Because the moment you're open, is when you're you're going to be like, damn, what have I been missing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> or that there's people that can relate to you. Or yeah. I imagine it's so lonely to be a victim of of something like this. If someone, if someone in your family passes away from some sort of natural cause, there's there's other people to talk to. But I imagine there are groups for people who have have had people pass away from a violent crime, but I imagine it feels like the most lonely. Like, I mean, I'm sure like even like, you know, I, I don't know how people react to you in Russia, but I'm sure there's an element of like, of like, whoa, their great grandpa did the black dog. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it's this yeah. kind of very lonely fame in a way. Yeah. yeah. So, but you, but you know, again, like we, I've, I've, that has never been in my mindset, you know, and maybe I'm a, you know, a rarity. I don't know. But like growing up, I, yes, I knew, but my mother was such this big, light, positive, like it did, that never sat in me, you know, until I was older. And really until, you know, Root of Evil came out and it was like, you know, now the whole world knew. So yeah, that's a different feeling. But but did you feel like there were eyes on you as like a relation to, oh my God, a serial killer or like, oh my God, a re- someone in relation to this violent crime? Yeah, I mean, I think I think so. But I, I think, you know, again, when people 
you know, take the time, right, and speak to Rasha and I, you can you can tell who we are, right, and mm-hmm. what we're about. But, you know, people, like you said earlier about, you know, the John Bonet and, and her brother, right, like we all made assumptions about him, about his mother, you know, and that has a lot to do with the media too, mm-hmm. you know, and how the media portrays people, you know, on television, because all these years later, like, especially when we were doing that case, because I was so, you know, that was one of the cases that stuck with me because I was in the pageant industry and, you know, this little, like, I just, it stuck in my mind for, for years. And, you know, when you start breaking it down and breaking the case down, you're like, we don't know. We don't Mm -hmm. know what happened. And like you said, you know, we were all so judgmental about this, you know, about him, about the mom, you know. We're just caught up in the salacious details. And at the end of the day, when you guys were talking about it, you're like, it's a child. It's a child. Yeah. Yeah. It's a child. So, yeah. You know, we have, we have to catch ourselves too. You know, we have to catch ourselves mm-hmm. and really step back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is something that has made me more hesitant or trepidatious around true crime is that we don't know so much mm-hmm. and witness statements are notoriously not accurate. Like mm-hmm. the more and more I learn about how trauma and the brain works, like yeah. The the least reliable if something is terrible is happening for you to do them be like, and this is exactly what this person yep. looks like, you yep. know, like so much of this stuff is based around witness statements that are not accurate. And that yeah. it's not that people are intentionally lying. It's that the yeah. memory memory is like not a great resource in these situations. The, right. You're right. It's true. And so, you know, I think in a lot of times, like Gabby was touching on, like you're you're not saying, oh, this person did it for sure, but you are raising suspicion around yes. them. Yes. And what is the, you know, personal responsibility of 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 doing that when you're not a hundred percent sure that they're culpable? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. And we, you know, we've really um, you know, we have great researchers, first of all, and great producers who, you know, are vetting obviously to the nth degree, right? But we have to be careful, and it, it it's it's how you say things too, you know, and and consciously thinking about what you're saying while you're saying it, you know. And again, Rasha and I are, you know, when we started facing evil, like we we got asked so many times to do different podcasts, true crime podcasts, but it wasn't. It was again salacious and not in our realm, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Um, And so when Facing Evil came to us, that was really what was so powerful about Tenderfoot and iHeart and and, um, Donald Albright. They really got what we were trying to do because we're, you know, we come from that generational trauma, you know? So it's, we're taking our perspective, you know, and telling the stories, but you know, we're really trying to put emphasis on the victim, Mm -hmm. who the victim was and what their legacy was. We're trying to really get out of, you know, well, oh, it was the boyfriend, even though, you know, sometimes that's hard to do because, you know, in your mind, you always think that, but we're really trying to stick to the facts and focus on the healing part of it more than anything, more than 
anything. And again, we don't know, yeah. you know, cause we, we haven't spoken to all of, you know, the family members, you know, so it's, it's a very, it's a very fine line and, and one that we walk very gracefully mm-hmm. and very respectfully because you think about all that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we did a case on Conrad Roy. Oh you know, yeah. the That case. And I felt bad because, you know, the young girl, like I, when you first read about it, you're like, how can somebody be so calculating? But, you know, when you think about it, it's like she was suffering just as much as he was. Yeah. This is, if you want more information about this case, you should watch I Love You Now Die by Erin Carr. She's incredible. Yes. That's about the Michelle Carter case. Yes. That is a case that lacked a lot of empathy or going, you know, going after Amanda Knox or going after uh, certain, you know, certain people that people want to feel like they've solved it. And I've been following this, this uh, murder in Idaho, this, this horrible murder of these four college kids in Idaho and people on Reddit want to feel like they solved it. So they've openly accused the ex-boyfriend, openly accused uh, a random guy that was seen on a surveillance video by a food truck, like rant, like just like every day there's a new suspect. And yeah, these people's yeah. lives are like getting upended. Like they're, they're, they think the sur- the surviving roommates did it or, you know, and these are just like the, on November 12th, these two girls just lived in a house with their friends. On November mm-hmm. 13th, they're the prime suspects in a nationwide murder. And like, you're just, you're not famous because you wanted to be famous. You're famous because now your name is Googleable and all this stuff in relation to a violent crime. And that's its own huge trauma. And that's its own, like these people, like the mental health toll on these people, even if it's like, oh, they're cleared, you know, I've seen posts where it's like the police make a statement being like, we have cleared the following people, right? And they make a list. And then people on Reddit are still like, Nah, (laughs) I don't know. And then meanwhile, there's all these cases that nobody gives any attention to that are like missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, You can find if you Google, there's tons of resources on on that. And like, yeah, we we did a case on Tina Fontaine. mm -hmm. Yeah, a young 15 year old indigenous woman, you know, child, I should say, excuse me. No, and that's really what we are trying to focus Mm -hmm. on. You know, the people's, the people who you don't hear about them. Mm-hmm. You don't get to talk to their family. Mm-hmm. You don't know their story, you know? So that's really, you know, our mission is to tell those stories. And again, m- most importantly, and I, I just want to repeat it again, is how we, they, all of us can heal. Yeah. I often think like, why don't you put your energy towards solving John and Jane Doe's? Like, I'm so... Those are like, if you're going to investigate something like, by God, like there's so I get so caught up in like NamUs and like all these things where it's like, there are so many people who are unnamed, who don't have their families don't know what happened to them. They died violently. And it's like, we, everyone deserves their name. And that's like, I think the most noble of like the people that work on Jane and John Doe's like to me is like so noble. And like, just, just do that instead of accusing someone's ex-boyfriend on Reddit, (laughs) look into the Jane and John Doe's Jesus Christ. No, I'm, I'm with you on that, Gabby, 100%. You know, when we did 
Alexis Murphy, who was, you know, this young black girl who was murdered. And I went on this site, you know, doing my research of all of the the black and brown young girls that have gone missing. I mean, like, and it didn't stop, you know? And I was like, we've never heard. And these are cases that are going back, like, even into the 40s, you know? Like, it just, it's, yeah. You know, that that's what we are trying to do, you know, on facing evil. So it's it's just so important. It's so important. And we're back. I'm curious your thoughts on justice, right? Like, because it's in a lot of ways, it's unfortunate that the route to justice involves the criminal justice system, which is notoriously corrupt and racist and oppressive. And so, you know, what what do you think about the fact that those two things are often linked and that the only way to get, quote unquote, justice is to send somebody to prison? Oh, God, that, that's a that's a whole nother podcast in itself. <laughs> you know, like there's so many cases that the justice system just failed fail because people didn't do their job. You know, um, we were just speaking, you know, with a doctor again yesterday, Dr. Sue, and it's like, we have to, like, we have to change the narrative, right? We, and it starts with education. We have to get the younger generation, you know, we have to get African-American, we have to get Chinese-American, Japanese-American, transgender, like people have to be in office to make this this change, you know, if we just have all, you know, white men in office, you know, it's always going to be the same, right? And sorry, what change are you referring to? Like the just in the ju- in the in the justice system, you know, right. that people um, are incorrectly incarcerated and yeah, that it doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> it's it's not, it's not working. It's not working. So. Again, like my my belief is we have to have more diversity in every way possible to change the system, to change the dynamics, you know, in the system. I think it's interesting when I, I sort of like when people go hard at like abolition and, oh, I don't think diversity in this uh, in, in the justice system we currently have will make a difference. I think we should dismantle the entire thing. I sort of I I like that because then I feel like we can get to if we can get like 5% of that energy <laughs> toward you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. like it's so hard because everything is so entrenched if we could just get 5% of that energy towards like overhauling the criminal justice system that would be amazing I I'm I'm a huge pessimist about that kind of thing like just a huge pessimist so I understand where you're coming from but like I have been fascinated by stories of restorative justice of people who have met with family. I don't know. It's 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 I don't have the answers and it's complicated. But there was a episode of what was I watching something where the girl the the a girl had murdered her boyfriend and she was in jail and the parents of the boyfriend started corresponding with her. And then they've become very close. And now they like go to this online church together and stuff. And they're like, they're close, the girl and the the parents. And the girl is like, look, I, I was a druggie. I 
he was like, I, I, it was just a complicated situation. And like, I should not have murdered him. And I'm like, you know, obviously, sorry, doesn't cover it. But like, they've become friends. And I felt watching it, I was like, uncomfortable. And that was like my own Mm. bias and like my own thought process where I was just like, I was just like, no, she doesn't deserve, you know, what, like, I just had my own judgment on the whole situation. But like, right, then right, I had right. to be like, well, but if you believe in restorative justice, then it's not my business. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I, right, but right. I judged it's, it immediately. <laughs> right. And it's not, it's not your place, you know, because people are always going to do what they feel is right for them. And who are we to judge you know, judge them for reconciling, you know, even though we can't come to terms with it. I was just like being so, I was so like, this is crazy. And, you know, it's interesting because it's like these things where it's like, well, I don't know. Like I, I'm, this is like, I'm revealing how much I look into this kind of thing, but like (laughs) with the, with the, the shoot, the Parkland shooting, because there were so many victims, the, everyone had a different, and they were the the um, hearing was taking place it near my hometown, so I was very interested. Oh, wow. And in the hearing, they were sort of deciding whether it would be a life sentence or or death sentence. And the, because there were seventeen victims, some of the families obviously were like very pro death penalty, and some of them were not. And even within yeah. even within those families, there would be like a mother who would tweet. I want the death penalty. And then there would be a son, a a sibling who would be like, I'm actually for restorative justice. And I think that we shouldn't have the death penalty within one family. And so like, it's so complicated, but especially when you're, everybody's dealing with trauma and there's like maybe more than one victim, or even if there is one victim, you know, a a father might be anti-death penalty. A daughter might be pro-death penalty. Like it's so complicated. It's so, so complicated. And, you know, it's, we, we take on, we take it personal because we, we relate everything to our life, right. And how we were raised. So, you know, there were, I would say like when I was probably in my twenties, like I 100% believed in the death penalty. Mm -hmm. I could not you know, especially when it came to children, like there are just things I was like, just I can't even, mm-hmm. I just can't even, how do we, how do we restore or re- rehabilitate someone that is that evil and malicious, you know, in my mind, but, you know, as you get older, you evolve your, you change your mindset, you know, and now I, I, I have a different view on it, but it's still like, ugh, know. you know what I mean? So <laughs> I know, I know. You know, and it, it it goes, it's the same thing with in politics, you know, you're always in the family, there's always going to be, you know, the Republican, the Democrat, one believes this, one believes that, you know, it's the, the it's, leftist, you know, the leftist it's like, like the hard yeah. leftist, my family, it's like the hard leftist and then the medium leftist. And right. we're just arguing minutia at this point. <laughs> I guess just to just to wrap it up, like, you know, I think that there has been a tonal shift about true crime recently, where a few years ago it was all the rage. And now a lot of people are are more hesitant around it, like we've talked about. And so 
What would your response be in terms of like why these stories are worth telling and worth revisiting? I think these stories are so purposeful and telling. And like we were talking about earlier, because these people have never had the attention, you know, nobody has said their name, you know, and if they, if they have said their name, they're just telling it again in a salacious way. They're not sharing who the victim was as a human being, as a person, what their legacy will continue to be. You know, I always like to say people don't come into this world victims. You know, they're not born victims. So on Facing Evil, if we can highlight, you know, the victim and share their light, despite all the darkness that is, you know, surrounded their, their story. I mean, I really feel like that is our, our mission, our purpose. And again, about hope and healing, you know, we always end every episode with any Mua, which means onward and upward. You know, how do we, how do we move onward and upward? Um, and that is the, you know, the question for all of us, right. In 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 some form or some way. So I think it's just, highlighting the victims and being able to tell their story with heart and dignity and empathy. And that there's no perfect victim. I mean, obviously everyone can get on board with a little child, but like, you know, the, the serial killers that get away with it are, they kill often black and brown sex workers and they think nobody's going to care. And if that yeah, hugely yeah, changed, yeah. if that changed a lot, we could save a lot of lives because it doesn't matter. I, like we can't just care about like people who seem quote unquote innocent. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And then again, it goes back to, you know, we all have a story, right? We all have a story. Mm-hmm. I also have a game show if you would <laughs> like to play. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Okay, Allison, let's play the game. Absolute tonal shift. I'm just, I'm, I'm looking hard for those transitions every episode. Oh How the hell oh do God. I get us to the next oh segment? Um, <laughs> so funny. So hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to ask you a series of hypothetical situations. You tell me what you would do in that situation. And then we just kind of have a chat about it. And sometimes I declare a winner. Mm. okay so our first game is america's favorite game show would you stay with this cheater your partner of 25 years works for a company with an atmosphere that promotes partying and cheating on your spouse oh my god yeah yeah i'm like let's just stop you there no no you have to hear you have to hear the rest no okay what's the rest of it in order to fit in your partner has hired escorts over the years to pretend to be their side piece at company gatherings so they look like they treat as well. They have had to kiss the escort and touch them to make it convincing, (laughs) but they never enjoyed it. Would you stay with this cheater? Is this is this an episode of White Lotus? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> oh my god, Mike White, I'm available for season three. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh my god, uh, hell no, <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, yeah, thank you. It's, not it's a very high paying job. No. Yeah, no, no, absolutely not. But they're not cheating, cheating. Yes, they no. are. Look, yeah, I mean, they are again, cheating, here's right. the thing. 
Do I think it's nice that they've been giving work to to escort? Probably quote unquote easy work. Although I don't know when I was a sex worker, the emotional aspect was devastatingly hard. But it's a lot of emotion, yeah, right? They've been giving them work. I I don't know. But then again, like uh, why haven't they told me about it? They thought that you would get mad. Of course. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's not going to go well for me. I'm a Leo, so, um, yeah, no, no. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I think that this, I think maybe, maybe you need a different, maybe you need a different job, man. I don't know. I think if they told you that they were doing this to fit it, I don't know. It depends how much money they're making. I'm going to be honest. If they're making millions of dollars and every now and then they have to hire somebody to pretend to be their girlfriend at a party and I know about it, fine. But if I, I guess I wouldn't like the not millions come. of dollars. Yeah. Millions. It would have millions. to be millions. Trillions. 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 And then I hope that they're compensating these people fairly. Oh, definitely. Okay. Fine. You know, John always jokes that if we ever get really rich, I'm not allowed to be in charge of the money because I would give it away to everybody right. I met. I would, I would be like, I'd be like, oh, thank you so much for this coffee. Here's a thousand dollars. Elon Musk. <laughs> oh my god, it's so true. Oh, oh man. <laughs> okay, You're a giver. So, uh, like it's really bad. I'll be like, I like didn't have, a, I didn't like have the right amount for the women that clean our house, and I was like, well, I can't ask for change. That would be rude. I'll just give them the extra. And John's just like, what are you? <laughs> No, that's good. I always overpay for stuff. I overpay for everything. I always too. overpay. I, yeah. I overtip too. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I, I love yeah. to give a yeah, big yeah, tip. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um. yes. <laughs> and I love to hear those stories too when you know people leave like the waitress like ten thousand dollars or something. You know what I mean? Have you? Yes. I love. But that. then it's like pay people a fair living wage. <laughs> I know. This should not be on notoriously good yeah, that's notoriously true. good tipper Drew Carey to carry everyone through college. <laughs> okay, so we're all gonna leave unless they're really rich. That's a good takeaway. Always. Almost, almost <laughs> always. <laughs> okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? You get called in. <laughs> I forgot what I did for this what? one. Okay. You get called in for a parent-teacher conference. After your child, Seven, drew a cartoon of a family that is all pooping in the same room. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There is a caption that says, a family that eats together poops together. When the teacher shows you this, you start laughing instead of being concerned. Because it comes out that the caption is a direct quote from something you once said after getting burritos as a family. <laughs> Are you a terrible How parent? Old is this child? <laughs> Seven. Oh my god! Oh my god! Okay, I'm gonna go first. No, I am not a terrible parent. Oh my god! And that would I would be the parent that would be laughing. <laughs> that is extremely funny. I mean, he's he's seven. You know what I mean? It's not like he's 15. Right, right, right. You know what I'm saying? He's seven. So, you know, and yes, I will admit, you know, I've said that, but I definitely, (laughs) first, I would break, I would, I would bust out like completely. I am that parent that I would laugh. Yeah. That is extremely (laughs) funny. That is extremely funny. I would save that, that drawing (laughs) and frame it. (laughs) 
kind of impressive for a seven-year-old to be able to write that down. Right? That's so, what I'm saying. So I'd be I like, my very kid good. is pretty smart. They I have, a, they have smart. a real future as a cartoonist. You know what I mean? They're an illustrator. (laughs) They're they're drawing. How good is the drawing? It's, I mean, it's clear that they're pooping, (laughs) but it's not super detailed. So we can, we can, you know, we can can see what's happening in it, right? Oh my God. (laughs) And they've definitely set a scene. And and, and what was, what do they say in the meeting? (laughs) They say, well, this is, they're drawing inappropriate stuff. Oh, I would not, say I don't even I, think I, it, I would say I would say <laughs> I thought the meeting was going to be I, that I, they're concerned that we are actually pooping in the same room. Oh, that's oh, yeah. Oh, OK. See, I well, didn't they even, get I, clarity on that. But I don't oh. know. Are you is that so bad? I don't know. What would, would, would they call would CPS reported for would pooping if you're in the same room? I don't know. Oh, my God. Okay, well that that just shifted to a whole nother story. That's what I thought. I didn't think it was like because they drew something inappropriate. I would think they were like, "Hey, is everything okay at home?" Um, yeah, I don't know. It's so unclear what is it isn't allowed and what if is it isn't. If you are a guidance counselor, let us know if a child drew a photo of their family pooping in one room. Would that be cause? Would you? Would you then like try to see if that's really what's happening? Well, I think it also matters, like, where are they pooping? Because if you're just pooping on the floor, that's, what that's I was gonna say. a Does, hygiene problem. Does everyone have individual toilets? Yeah, right. That was my next question. Are they <laughs> are they sitting on a toilet? You know what I mean? Not in the drawing. Ah, well. In- oh. Yeah. Okay, Allison, be- you got to get more explicit on this, <laughs> this drawing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the fan could please make a drawing of this for us. Um, yeah. The cartoon. That oh, let really us know. Hard. Yeah. We'll, oh we'll sell it. We'll auction it oh off for charity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. Okay, <sighs> our final scenario. Would you forgive this liar? Your spouse has always hated your favorite sweater and groans whenever you wear it. One day, you can't find it anywhere and ask if they have seen it. They deny knowing anything and you believe them. One year later, you find your sweater balled up and shoved in the back of the hall (gasps) closet where they clearly hid it from you. Would you forgive this liar? No, that's so mean. You don't have control over. No, no, you don't have control over my, what I wear. Why do they hate? Oh why God. do they hate it so much? Mind oh your God. business. Oh my wow. God, I would forgive. What? Because no, mind your business. <laughs> because oh, why am I going to say what? this on air? <laughs> what did you do? My husband. My my husband has so many clothes that he hasn't even looked at and he says if I pull it out and he hasn't looked at it in 15 years he'll be like oh my god that's my favorite shirt I'm like dude you haven't even looked at this so I wouldn't be that mad because I've done okay, it okay but what if okay <laughs> you've hidden wait you've hidden his stuff or you've just thrown it out without telling him I've donated it wow but okay has he ever caught on Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Okay, if I wear the sweater all the time, though, versus like if you pull out a shirt that's like frayed and he's like, my favorite shirt. I mean, that's different, but it depends. It depends, right? Is his favorite shirt, does it have like holes? Does it have stains on it? Mind your business. You're not wearing it. (laughs) Yeah, but Gabby, what if it was a shirt that said FBI female body? (laughs) (laughs) Then it's my 
shirt now. <laughs> what if it? What if it was a shirt of your family pooping all together? <laughs> yup, there it is. There it is. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you and um, everything about your various podcasts? Oh my God. Thank you guys so much. You know, thank you. Thank y'all. Thank you. I just loved being here with you. Um, you guys can find me on Instagram at YWBlen or Facing Evil Pod at tenderfoot.tv. Um, or on iHeartRadio, you can find us on whatever you listen through, um, Facing Evil. Thank you so much. Amazing. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about confrontation. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 X. What's baby? next? <laughs> baby. I didn't say baby. Yeah, Gab- I'm s- yeah. No. Gabby's fading. <laughs> I'm so yep. tired. I have open wounds. <laughs> <laughs> I have little band-aids on my open wounds. Oh. Well, we missed our pizzazz of our baby train, but I think we all know that this is a fun part of the pod anyway, where we argue <laughs> with each other. <laughs> Yeah, because it's about confrontation. Confrontation. Um, why did you choose this? I just needed a topic. I'm really scraping the bottom of the barrels at this point for different things no. we can discuss. You didn't, get oh a, you didn't get in a fight with somebody? I didn't, no. And you're like, that's it. That's it. Well, I have said, I, I have noticed the thing about myself that I actually like, which is I've become less confrontational with people when I disagree with them about politics or the way that they view the world or COVID. Like I used to get so riled up and now I no longer feel like it is my job to change people's mind about things they're wrong about. (laughs) Yeah. um, Or that I disagree or that I disagree with. Yeah. And so I've actually become even less confrontational but then there are moments where I will be fully con- like I am such a spectrum like I I can like sometimes be like incredibly confrontational, but I'd say 95 percent of the time I am not. Yeah, it's hard because there's certain people that it's good to confront or it's good to get into it with. Like I definitely had to my parents and my aunt came to L.A. for Thanksgiving and like my mom my mom loves a confrontation and she <laughs> confronted me in fact about <laughs> transition and just wanted to understand it and just was like very like had a lot of questions and that interaction i was like okay this is in good faith like i'll you know explain all of this stuff and like if she's wrong about certain things i'll i'll tell her and like with my dad it but like there's with your parents, it's like you have to just know where they're where they're up to. Like you have to be like, where are you in your journey of learning? And I can't like but but I'm lucky because they just were they, it's interesting because they're very pro LGBT, but it's like they kind of forgot about the T part. And they were like, wait, oh, you're the T part. Oh, interesting. So like I'm working with a base where the confrontation is minimal. But and they my dad's actually been great. 
Um, and my mom, my aunt both like left like understanding more. But yeah, like I, I do worry because like, am I, if someone is transphobic, I, I do feel like I, I have to say something, but I'm also like, then I don't know. There's this one person that I know has said transphobic stuff in the past, but never around me. And they seem nice, but I'm like waiting. Like I'm a little bit waiting for them to say something in front because they've said it in front of other trans people. So I'm like, I'm sort of waiting for them to say it in front of me. And then I'm like ready to go. Are um, you close to them? No, but I'm like, I'm, I, but then they haven't said anything in front of me, but then twice they've said something in front of another friend of mine. So I'm like, okay, so I'm now, I can't, I can't go and say, Hey, so-and-so told me you said this, like, I'm going to fucking kill you. But instead I have to be like, I'm just sort of biding my time as I hang out in groups, like waiting for this person to say something so that I can step in, but Mm -hmm. they haven't done it. He hasn't done it yet. Yeah. Like uh, things like where I'm like, because it is difficult of like, when do you, because people definitely say problematic stuff. <laughs> and yeah. so, but there's different levels of problematic stuff. So if someone says something super problematic, I will like, yeah, I say shit like, mm-hmm. and I'm in your face. But it, when it's on that cusp of like, I know is they're this my problem. Is this, you know, but like, I, I think I used to be like, you're an idiot or you are, mm-hmm. pro- you know, like I, and now I kind of like circumvent where I'm like, okay, so I can see why you see it that way. But mm-hmm. like, almost like pose a question of like, but what if this was right. actually the reality? Right. Or Rather what than... if you just don't understand because it's not your lived experience? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm at the point now, it's like, do I have the mental, because co- I used to be very confrontational and ready to fight verbally at a drop of a hat. And now I'm just like, do I have the mental capacity for this? Do I have time today? And will there actually be like an actual resolve to this? Or is it, am I just going to be, yeah, like, am I just going to be yelling? And then they're like, okay, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like also learning that, like, if you make people feel like they're bad people, they'll shut down and they won't Mm -hmm. hear what you have to say anyway. And like learning that has helped me because I'm like, okay, so that approach, I mean, there's difference, right? Because if somebody does something really bad, I want them to know that I don't want to be around them and how they mm-hmm. behaved was unacceptable. Mm-hmm. But if it's, again, that that like misinformed, like I yeah. identify as liberal, but I'm saying problematic right, stuff. Right, right, right. It's like I, the gen- I try like the gentle approach yeah. where it's like, oh, I can see why you would think. But instead of like jumping down their throat because I've learned that that's like not effective mm-hmm. and will probably make them dig their heels in even more. It's hard because do you say something publicly so that the people around know that it's not okay, or do you pull them aside? Sometimes I wonder if maybe it would have been more effective in the past if I just pulled them aside and Mm. like rather than made them feel bad, like a bad person, but like pulled them aside. I don't know. I think it depends who's there, right? Because I think if they're if they're saying something problematic towards someone who's there, yeah, then I think saying it publicly publicly. would. I don't know. It's really hard. And then there's also just like, you know, things that aren't necessarily like political or charged or whatever. And it's more just like, like my friend's not calling me enough. Do I tell them that? You know, like that kind of confrontation. Yeah. I am horrible at. Yeah. I'm bad at that too. I also just jump so like. 
first, it's so weird for some people. I'm like, this isn't about me. And then for other people, I'm like, they hate. Yeah. It's weird how things are just like, they depend on the person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people like I'm closer to, I know that I can say things to them that, you know, I might not have such a soft delivery with, but it'll get to, but then it's like other people that I am close to too. It's like, are they actually going to hear this? Or then, you know, people that I may not be as close to, but I don't know how they're going to react. So I don't know how I'm actually going to say these things. Or again, do I even think it's going to be worth any of our time to have this conversation? What about interpersonally, Melissa? Like there's certain people that I'm friends with that if they stop responding, I'm like, well, it's over. And then certain people that I'm friends with that, and it's never over, but then certain people that I'm friends with that they couldn't talk, they would not talk to me for four weeks. And I'd be like, we're still close. Yeah. I mean, there's friends that I haven't talked to months or years that I would still like consider, like they were like friends that I was like super close to, but life happens and you may not live in the same place anymore. Or, you know, they just, everybody just has a lot of things going on. And so you may not talk to as much, but they're still just like your close friend or, and there may be people that you're physically closer to in like an area. And then y'all stop talking for a few months and you're like, mm-hmm. guess I'm done. I think, cause I moved around a lot and I've, I've said this before. Um, I just, I just kind of like with friends, it's like, here I am today. And if we're friends today, great. And if not, <laughs> okay, whatever. Well, if I, if Drew doesn't write back to me for 12 hours, I'm like, she hates me, which is never true. It's never true. And that's like one of my best friends. And I could absolutely double text her. But for Uh some reason, I'm like, well, she hates me now. She doesn't hate me. There's never any, there's no reason to think that she hates me. But then like with other people, I'll, I'll text them 45 times in a row and then I'll get like one reply and I'll be like, great. Yeah. Or it's like friends I haven't seen in like six months. And I'm like, we're still close. We're still friends, you know? And then there are other friends where I'm like, I have not seen you this week. What's wrong? Right. That's <laughs> I, right, right, right. So I'm like, oh my God, we should have, we should have a sit down about if everything's okay. The me- I've drew us the, the many times, I think like three times, like she hasn't written me back in 24 hours. And I've been like, hey, are we okay? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, what? And I'm a secure person. That's what would you do if I didn't write back within 24 hours? Would you think I was dead? I would go on your TikTok and see if you'd posted anything with John. And then I'd be like, I guess she's mad at me or something. And then I would like, maybe I would, I would go to the text and like, do like the, the the two, (laughs) the two like exclamation points. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then if you didn't write back to that, then I would maybe text John and be like, is Allison mad at me? <laughs> or I would text Melissa and say, is Allison but mad at me? But then it's like, with me, it's like, will I get back to you today or tomorrow? Oh, or when you don't get back now? to me, Melissa, I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, like, exactly. I'll, I'll hear from Melissa when I hear from Melissa. <laughs> See, it just, again, it just depends on the person. <laughs> when you were on a flight, Allison, remember you were on a flight for like six hours and I texted your mom that I thought you died? <laughs> remember that? <laughs> Yeah. You were unreachable for like four hours. And I like texted Ruth being like, is Allison alive? Is Allison okay? Should we call the police? <laughs> I will say another thing that's been really helping me is processing my feelings with John about something that upset me. And mm-hmm. I can process it 
with him. And then I don't feel the need to confront because like just through the act of like talking it out and seeing like, okay, like getting a read from another person of like, was I okay to be upset about this? Was this behavior actually not okay? Like, am I valid in my feelings? Why do we think they acted like this? What do they, you know, like I can kind of have like the catharsis of a confrontation without actually having to confront the person. I sit, that's so good. I mean, sometimes I sit and I go, is this real? Like I feel abandoned, let's say, but then I look around and I'm like, I'm not abandoned. There's no evidence Mm. for this. Like I really have lately been like a lot of times sitting down with feelings and not Hard, hot take, everyone. Not every feeling is valid. And if it is valid, not, it doesn't have to be someone else's problem. Like there are ways to be like, I okay, I feel lonely. I feel like no one cares about me. What is the evidence that people do care about me? Okay, there's a lot of that evidence. So how do I eliminate this feeling or how do I move through this feeling without going up to someone, without, you know, m- messaging my sister and being like, everyone hates me and you hate me. You know what I mean? How do we, how do we, how do we not turn this into uh, toxic action? That's gross, baby. Yeah. Can you imagine me? (laughs) Healthy? Me? (laughs) Not impulsive? Me? Growing? What's that? Some, honestly, today in hypotheticals, I was, you surprised me with some of your answers. I was like, huh, interesting. I have gray hair now. I'm different. (laughs) I have gray hairs growing on the side of my head um, and I have no tits anymore. I'm a distinguished elder gentleman who <laughs> is actually never done anything wrong in my life and I'm actually um, really, what's the word, zen. And uh, I'm going to read books and drink tea now. This is me. You read books already. Yeah, but I'm not, I, I will, I'm You're saying gonna that. You're going to read self-help books? <laughs> no, I'm going to read like biographies <laughs> of like, of like World War II generals. Like I'm going to turn into that kind of like old man, sort of like reading historical fiction type person. I'm going to become really boring. Said me oh, never. No. I'll confront happen. you if you Eject. do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That will, never, Start that over. will absolutely never happen. I'm like, nobody who's ever been boring has been like, I'm now committed to being boring. Like nobody, <laughs> like I'm doing it as a bit. Like nobody's ever actually been boring as if they said that. Uh, what do we rate this episode? I rate it 34 out of 28 confronting and healing intergenerational trauma. Oh, a real combo. I rate it 40 out of 20 familial group poops. Yeah. (laughs) Very different from Put it on a shirt. Put it on a shirt. (laughs) And I will rate it 87 out of 79 dry drains. Hey, and shout out to Alex who did all of my drains, all of them, every single one, and still and still likes me, apparently. Thank you to Yvette Gentili for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin, and me, Gabe Dunn, produced by Melissa Diamond Monk, edited by Coco Lorenz, executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our color theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok, 
TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Forever.